would like to say uh, just a little bit more <clears throat> about our relationships with and our views, conceptions of, and our experiences of um, body, sensuality, and sexuality, and just say a little bit more in the service of opening up the discourse, opening up the questioning, opening up the exploration, and uh, opening up, hopefully, uh, some avenues there. Um, before I get immediately onto that, I just want to uh, say say uh, something else. Just uh, it, that's related, but um, the reason I want to say it is because it's so easy to um, listen or, or read teachings and approach them from within uh, a certain set of fixed assumptions, sometimes we're not even fully conscious what those assumptions are. Um, or we may be conscious, but they still go kind of unchallenged. They're not really questioned. <clears throat> so, Eros, we have said... Um, already many times, it may be sexual, it may be not non-sexual, eros, it can be very, very subtle, extremely subtle, um, and it can be um, very, very intense, uh, eros, whether it's sexual, whether it's not sexual, the eros can have that whole range of, if you like, the force or depth of it, of subtle to intense, and can be what some people would regard as extreme. It's uh, the eros running in a certain direction in a person's life can seem to others like this is pretty extreme. Their devotion to uh, the, their beloved, whatever that beloved is, the devotion <coughs> of an artist to their art and the, the dedication that that takes, uh, etc., can seem uh, extreme, uh, obsessive, uh, etc., ruthless even, uh, or all that, out of balance, um, or the devotion, the eros towards um, a lover when, 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 uh, when one is in love, or a religious eros, <clears throat> the devotion to the, the, the religious beloved, whatever, whatever form that takes. And easily, when the eros is is very strong, and it can seem, from a certain perspective, to be extreme, um, it's it's easily pathologized by others. Um, e either either way, uh, when the eros is towards, for example, for example, eros for the transcendent, someone want to know the unfabricated, and one, in some cases, stakes one's life on it, as the Buddha did, um, either when it's that kind of eros, or when it's towards, um, uh, from another perspective, uh, from many perspectives, the, ero, the intense eros towards the transcendent, from most modernist perspectives of our culture and kind of non-religious culture, just seems uh, very easily pathologized, some kind of crazy thing. Uh, that, that what are you wanting is kind of something that sounds like a nothing for a start. It sounds very abstract, and, it's, and it seems to be away from life. Um, and from the other perspective, a sort of more um, renunciate 
perspective of certain religious traditions, the eros towards a human being when one is in love is also pathologized. This is delusion, this is crazy, uh, etc. Or the eros towards the world, etc. So pathologization, pointing the finger and regarding others as pathological because um, we don't uh, share their erotic attraction and certainly not the intensity of that. This happens very easily, this pathologization, either way, in either direction, from either camp, if you like. And and what happens there so often is, um, in uh, contrast to this sort of extremity or intensity of the erotic uh, movement and opening, um, moderation is elevated. So moderate in all things, or whatever the the phrase says. And this is regarded as healthy. Anything immoderate or extreme is regarded as not, is, is, is pathologized. That may have its place sometimes uh, and, and, and may have a certain wisdom to it, but what is the consequence or what are the consequences of, of moderation being elevated? Uh, how easily um, moderation can come, become um, mediocrity. Moderation may breed a kind of mediocrity in terms of what opens to us, what we can discover, what we can create. Remember, discovering, creating is the movement of soul making. And mediocrity in terms of what soul making is <clears throat> then uh, available to us and opens for us. It's one of the uh, uh, potentially negative consequences of sort of this elevation of moderation. Why shouldn't one be extreme in one's eros for the transcendent? Why shouldn't one be extreme? Why shouldn't one burn with an intensity for knowing the unfabricated, for knowing the the divine or the deathless, the divine beyond all concepts, the deathless beyond all concepts, beyond space, beyond time? Certainly, as I just said, the Buddha was uh, extreme in his desire for that. Or in regard to any kind of um, religious uh, erotic movement or desire or longing or calling, yearning. <clears throat> For example, someone who wants to, to uh, become a celibate monastic or is a celibate monastic. For so many people, it's, it's, it's such a... For some people who don't share that, uh, who can't really resonate with that longing, it seems like such a strange uh, m- movement. It's true that one may be uh, desiring to be a celibate or a monastic or to go beyond the world, to know the unfabricated, out of fear, out of uh, some, some kind of uh, closing rather than uh, the opening movement of fear. It's certainly true. But I mentioned Thomas Merton the other day and he has this beautiful, um, beautiful writer and, and he has a an autobiography of a period in his life, I think, up to the time he he, uh, became a monk, a Trappist monk. Now, at that time, the Trappists were an extremely uh, strict order. Their rule was very strict. I mean, not only were they, of course, celibate, but they uh, 
I think they couldn't actually speak, so they had to communicate when necessary about only very necessary things in sign language, I think. I mean, it was known as um, one of the two or three most strict of the monastic Catholic orders. And he was he describes in this book, The Seven Story Mountain, his uh, partial autobiography uh, of, of his the, the, the growing uh, longing in him an inclination to uh, become a monk and to give himself to that life and he visits monasteries and he talks with spiritual advisors and priests and and, and oftentimes the priest didn't share that extreme longing and regarded it as a bit too extreme, etc. But at one point he says, I think with one of his spiritual advisors or a priest or something, um, he says, Father, I want to give God everything. I want to give God everything. Because because the priest was asking, why can't you, can't you choose a, a kind of easier order to go into, a less extreme, a less renunciate, less sort of hardcore and full on? And he said, Father, I want to give God everything. Uh, and, and so easily that view is, 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 uh, is just not resonated with, not understood and regarded as pathological. Now, I also remember for myself when I was uh, living as a musician in in um, in the U.S. and I was in a Ph.D. program in composition and teaching at the university there, and um, and I made the choice to give that life up, and uh, the plan was to ordain as a monk um, after doing a year retreat at Guy House. And I was people asked me, and or, or I met people, and, and they would ask me. What are you doing, and this and that, and I would explain. Well, this is this is what my plan is, and in quite a lot of the, the cases, uh, the 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 uh, person I was talking to, their face would drop, or their jaw would drop, and and the sort of look of horror and disgust would come over their uh, face in reaction to this idea of. Um, uh, living as a monk or, 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 or dedicating oneself to a celibate life and renunciate life away from sense pleasures devoted to some kind of what does it say probably seem like just some abstract uh, uh, longing and life of loneliness and all this who knows what they were thinking um, but this this view comes out of not understanding just not resonating not having that um, uh, the soul aflame in that direction, in that, in that, in the direction of what we call, what we might call the, the religious knowing God, whether it's the unfabricated or other other um, directions of religiosity. The eros there is limited uh, when people pathologize that or judge it as extreme, uh, that kind of desire. Uh, their eros in that direction is just very limited, and therefore they don't value. They can't see any value in that. And so often, as I said before, what happens is we prioritize something called balance and something called psychological health. And these, um, first of all, we have very limited views, very socially constructed uh, views of what balance looks like and what something called psychological health looks like, um, views that we've gathered from our, uh, s- that are, you know, congruent, basically, or informed or influenced by by our contemporary society and, and, and worldview. Um, 
the limited views of something called balance and something called psychological health, which of course are related. And sometimes these almost become ends in themselves. I'm practicing my meditation for psychological health. And not, not that that's not important, but does it always need to be limited to a view that puts that first and that sees that is the end or the only legitimate end? Uh, and, and then we've talked about balance before and actually the importance in navigating, but sometimes we prioritize, I feel, uh, sometimes we over-prioritize this idea of balance and being balanced. And we have either a, a static picture or we've just elevated of what balance is, or we've just elevated the whole, uh, you know, the whole um, ideal of balance. Maybe there's a place... Uh, and times for being really not balanced. I am falling, I am climbing, I am out of balance as I run towards something, whatever it is, as I dance, as you know. And maybe I just fall, I, I fall, or I stumble, or, or whatever, and it's part of the erotic movement. So, we can very easily, you know, hear or meet someone, or even in, in in the instances of our own eros, look at ourselves and see a kind of what what from certain perspectives looks too intense, is too extreme. Uh, this eros in whatever direction, as of what about balance? What about psychological health? And I don't want to dismiss that. So again, it's like please, all, all teaching is contextual. So I'm, I'm a little bit responding, as I said, to what can become just kind of quite entrenched, um, often unconscious, but quite a lot of the time, not quite fully questioned views, not quite fully revealed, well, why is it that I have this assumption? And is it really a necessary assumption? What's it based on, etc.? Um this, in contrast, this prior prioritizing of balance and psychological health, whatever those notions um, come to mean for us, um, in contrast with another approach, which, which would be a little bit in line with what we're saying, is like, let the eros lead. What if we trust the eros and trust even the directions that it wants to go in so that it will make soul-making uh, and forge ahead and open and penetrate and, 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 and search and discover and burn through in the directions that it wants to? And if that's towards the transcendent, beautiful. How, how does it want to? Where does the Eros want to move? And trusting that, and trusting that as we've been describing that, at some point in that process, just because of the Eros Psyche Logos dynamic and that mutual insemination, mutual fertilization, mutual widening and richening, and, and how that will start moving out to touch everything else, it, the, the Eros, the direction, the directionality of the Eros and the directionality of the soul making will spread. So as I said, if one then um, uh, opens to the unfabricated, for instance, or even before one has opened, it starts spreading. Something happens. Why? If if I don't dampen the eros, if I don't block the, the movements and the expansion of psyche and logos, it will do that. So another view is actually to trust that and trust um, being off balance at times and being extreme and people thinking you're weird and, th and this and that. 
There's a different kind of um, imbalance that comes when the eros is blocked, or the psyche is blocked, or the logos is blocked. Then, then, as I said before, some people entering the monastery or, de- or becoming uh, deliberately celibate, or what, whatever it is, or chasing some transcendent, unfabricated, because um, the eros is dampened. It's a movement of contraction, of fear of eros. And um, I'm afraid of sexuality. I, I, the body disgusts me. Um, I, 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 I'm afraid of re- human relationships, wh- whatever it is. Or the logos is, is cramped, um, or, or whatever. And this could be, as we said, in any direction, etc. Well, what about trusting eros and just opening uh, the space for that soul-making dynamic to... Um, do its natural thing, which will be like water. It will be to find its direction, um, uh, find its multiple directions where it can flow. Or like fire. So, uh, this seems to me important just in the way we're hearing and viewing all this. But as I said, I just want to spend a little time. Um, Talking a bit more about how eros and and uh, in its insemination, its ignition of the soul-making dynamic involving eros psychologos will um, affect the views, the relationships, and the um, experiences of um, body sensuality and sexuality. So transforming, opening, giving dimensionality to all that. Because of what we said about the um, potential, potential endlessness and open-endedness um, and multi-directionality of the movement of the soul-making dynamic, um, w- these aspects of our existence, body, sense, sexuality, al- along with uh, a lot of others, um, can, are potentially, potentially infinite. So the way the views can be transformed, the dimensionality given to them, the, the new openings of perception and view and sense and actual experience, and what these things mean to us and the place they have, that is um, potentially infinitely openable. In other words, wherever we are now, wherever I am now, there is some unforeseen um, insights, experiences, views, conceptions, openings, relationships with body, with sensuality, with sexuality, um, that I have, I have no inkling what they are right now. It's, it's unknown to me now. It's part of the beyond of the eros, uh, of that whole soul-making movement. I just don't know. <clears throat> um, so in this p- p- uh, field of potential uh, inf potentially infinite opening, can only obviously say a little here, partly due to time and partly because of the fact that relative to infinity, whatever we say is only going to be a little. Okay, so we could take this in any order, but um, actually just just before we even get into it, just to say... um, Notice that even if we have um, a strong desire, a strong eros flowing through us for the unfabricated, I want to know that, I want to open to it, I want to taste it. Um, uh, in, in the traditions of Buddha Dharma, in Buddha Dharma understanding, we can't um, 
in in that desire and in s- supporting and following that that eros for the unfabricated, we, we do not the way of the Buddha Dharma, the way that the Buddha taught uh, to know that is not to ignore or cut off or kind of beat down the body and the senses. Absolutely not. So um, there is mindfulness of the body. It's the first foundation of the mind of, of um, mindfulness. It's absolutely integral to the Buddha's um, path. Is careful attention, particular kinds of attention, mindfulness of the body to the body and to sense experience. So there's attention to sense experience. Mindfulness of body and mindfulness and attention to sense experience. And in some, as we as we said in the last few days in some some of the talks, in some traditions of Buddha Dharma, more of the tantric traditions, um, also with regard to sexuality, sexual energy, it's regarded, for example, as a vehicle. This is actually something we do engage. We don't ignore it. We don't cut it off. We don't beat it down. We engage it um, as a vehicle because we can gather and collect those energies and channel them in certain ways in the energy body and this um, uh, uh, allows certain openings of the perception, particularly in the um, uh, tantric schools, uh, an opening to the clear light mind. Um, but but in all, uh, certainly in Pali canon Buddhism, there's the emphasis is that you're not ignoring the body, you're not cutting it off, you're certainly not kind of beating it down. Or, um, but there's mindfulness of the body and mindfulness, uh, certain kinds of attention to the body and to the sense experiences. However, this um, the purpose of this mindfulness to the body and to sense experience and the attention to them is is it serves the understanding of the fabric, the pendant arising, the fabrication of the perception of the body and of sense experience. In other words, it's not for a reveling in the body uh, and sense experience and sense pleasure. It's not for a glorification of the body. It's not to see the beauty or, or even the miracle of the body uh, and all that. It's it's actually, at least in my reading of Pali Canon uh, Buddhism is actually uh, why do, why are we mindful of the body? Why are we mindful of sense experience? We're mindful in in certain ways to understand the dependent arising of the very perception of body and sense experience, and in the mindfulness wrapped up with the mindfulness is in a context of practicing ways of looking that actually fabricate less perception of the body. Um, so, for example, the um, Jhanas, the, the, the progression of the jhanas, you could say, are um, what they really are, are pro- progressive, um, progressively unfabricated perceptions of the body. So the the Buddha, the first four jhanas especially, it's really about the body and the perception of the body. The body is, rather than being perceived as this solid, um, uh, you know, material structure starts to be perceived um, in as fine material form, what the Buddha calls fine material form. The body becomes rapture in the first jhana, it becomes happiness, so to speak, in the second jhana, becomes um, exquisite peacefulness, uh, tender, exquisite peacefulness in the third jhana, becomes just stillness, 
and I'm still light often in, in the fourth jhana, very, very refined perception of materiality. And then in the fifth jhana, that perception of solidity and what the Buddha calls obstruction is um, is unfabricated even more, is dissolved even more, so to speak, is transcended even more. <clears throat> and, and there's no perception of solidity, materiality of body at all. Um, and one enters the fifth jhana, the... the um, Jhana of infinite space, <clears throat> and then that too is refined through through the um, through the remaining jhanas, all the way um, to beyond the eighth jhana to an experience of total unfabrication in in the transcendent, in the deathless, in nibbana. So one is moving there, one is using mindfulness and an understanding of fabrication, practicing different ways of looking, of which mindfulness is one, actually mindfulness is several, um, if you read the Satipatthana Sutta, it implies ways of looking, but they, what they have in common is that they um, uh, fabricate less to different degrees, and through that we understand fabrication, but we're moving the experience um, is moving beyond the body and beyond sense experience. So what this means is, yes, absolutely not ignoring, not cutting off, not beating down the body and the senses, um, but we're using mindfulness and attention to body and senses um, for very specific purposes, in a way, to kind of go beyond them to the unfabricated. Um, so what that means, though, is that there's limited value given uh, to, to both the body and sense experience. Limited value in that, in that transcendental inclination of Pali Canon Buddhism, of, of the Buddha as he originally taught, to, to know the deathless, to know the unfabricated, to know that sphere, that dimension where the eye ceases, uh, and the perception of forms uh, ceases, etc., as I quoted those many passengers passages. So so all this means that yes we you know we pay attention to body and senses but they have limited value and and the stress is on not um desiring uh uh, f- for the body and not getting attached to the body and to the senses and to sense pleasures and experience. They therefore um body and sense experience have limited place uh, given to them in the in the construction of the path <coughs> in Pali Canon Buddhism. Um, even though they might feature very centrally, they're actually the, the place given is actually quite limited because it's just serving this other movement. And uh, point out that there's a limited uh, if you like view interpretation and therefore sense of and perception of both body and sense experience. Yes, So the whole um, view and interpretation is construed within the framework of a transcendentalist path um, and so uh, that actually um, if you like limits uh, and constrains the very sense and perception we have of both body and sense experience. Yes, because experience, perception of both will be limited by view and concept uh, and, and interpretation, etc. So, um, for example, related to all that, in the first foundation of mindfulness, there's a passage on contemplating uh, what the Buddha calls the unclean parts of the body. Uh, 
liver and spleen and kidneys and bile and blood and pus and uh, synovial fluid and all, all the rest of it. And uh, again, in, in the um, Satipatthana Sutta, there in the Mindfulness Sutra on Mindfulness, uh, the Foundations of Mindfulness, there is the encouragement to contemplate the body as uh, uh, the elements of the body, the classical elements of uh, earth, air, fire, water. And you know, one way of understanding that, and uh, it, it, the simplest, kind of the less uh, contorted, probably way of understanding that, is at that time conceiving in terms of elements was actually just like what we what we would consider now conceiving in terms of atoms look at the body and consider it as um, just a, a group of atoms there's probably I don't know calcium there in the bones and potassium and who, who know, you know all, all the stuff um, that the bodies are made of so so there's this view of the elements classically we can we we can interpret it and take it in different directions which do different things as always a certain view a certain spin will will take uh, the perception open it in different directions but one way is just to think of it what the buddha was getting at there was this was the 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 view of materiality back then that it was constructed for basic elements um, and uh, and it's something similar to our a kind of uh, deconstruction. The, the intention was a kind of deconstruction then of the body. This thing that we tend to get attached to and think, oh, wow, how wonderful, is just saying it's just the elements. It's just the elements. It's like us saying it's just a bunch of atoms. Um, in the service of, of less attachment, etc. Um <clears throat> So there is, um, wrapped up in, actually let's put it this way, emerging from our heritage in Pali Canon Buddhism and the transcendentalist thrust there that's not always acknowledged or realized or given emphasis or place to in modern um, interpretations of, of the Dharma and teachings of the Dharma that still try to place the Pali Canon at their basis. This calls causes all kinds of confusion and contradiction, etc. So one is in, in regard to the body, um, but also in terms of the senses. So <coughs> in the uh, Majjhima Nikaya, in the Alaguddhapama Sutta, uh, which is the s- s- snake simile in the, in the uh, middle-length discourses, um, the Buddha gives, uh, he says, sense pleasures, you know, don't, don't uh, go chasing them. So he's really um, uh, reining in the eros with regard to sense pleasure. Certainly re- reining in the, the craving, but it doesn't make the distinction with regard to eros. So um, it kind of all gets, as we've said, shoved in, in one uh, basket, so to speak. Um, but he says sense pleasures are uh, like fleshless bones. It's like throwing a bone with no flesh and just sort of blood-stained uh, to a starving dog. Completely uh, just just gets the dog a little bit excited. The dog will gnaw and chase and um, chew on this bone, but it's not getting any satisfaction there. So the sense pleasures, the Buddha said, are like fleshless bones. They're like carrying a a flaming torch of straw. So imagine that, a, a, a collection of straw in, in you're holding it and it's a flame and carrying that against the wind. And and so what what's going to happen there? Your, your hands are going to get burnt, your face is going to get burnt. 
Uh, he continues, the sense pleasures are like a pit of burning coals, um, which you're, you, you're dragged through. Uh, they're like borrowed goods. You might enjoy them, but they're temporary. You have to give them back. They are even more uh, extreme and more strong in his um, in his analogies. The sense pleasures are a slaughterhouse, he said, or like a butcher's block. You know, the block of wood where a butcher will um, cut up the meat, the carcasses. Um, they are like a stake of swords. In other words, those stakes where you you know sticking out of the ground with sharp ends, you're just going to get impaled there. They are like a snake's head. Yes, you get bitten, and uh, there's a poison to the bite. So these are really, really strong language. That so they bring suffering and disappointment. Sense pleasures are perilous, he says. It's very rare. Um, it's, it's not. Uh, uh, I do know teachers who talk this way, um, but uh, one teacher I'm particularly thinking of. It's very tongue in cheek, um, as well. Um, uh, but but it's pretty rare these days um, to use such extreme language or ex- even extreme kind of thrust of teaching regarding sense pleasures. Certainly in the insight meditation tradition and, and uh, other Buddhist traditions that I'm aware of. Why is that? Why is that? Even among monastics, why is that? Of course, and some of you might know, and we've alluded to it a little bit, tantric texts in tantric, but in reverse this, reverse this uh, teaching on uh, in regard to sense pleasures, and we'll maybe say a bit more about that. Let's see um, as we go on. But um, but this attitude, this teaching around sense pleasures in the, in the Pali Canon, um, the the. the the, the current of that and the tenor of that um, kind of informs and very strongly influences our current attitudes and views within the Dharma, of course, um, but actually en- ends up with quite a, a confused, sort of um, unintegrated, not very coherent uh, teaching in, in relation to s- sense experience and sense pleasure. Uh, and there's reasons to that, uh, which we'll come back to. Now, especially regarding sexuality, and sometimes it's, it's actually just avoided as a topic, of course, um, in, in a lot of um, uh, Buddhist teachings. Um, but actually, there's this kind of attitude and view permeating it, and yet it's mixed with other attitudes and views, and we can't quite reconcile the two. Um, certainly regarding... Uh, sexuality, probably regarding all sense pleasures, and we could say more, but let's stick to our themes, because same with romantic love, etc., which we've touched on. So there is this, this, um, this tenor, this voice, this thrust of the teachings right there from the early teachings. And it, I think it has all kinds of consequences. Um, uh, some people um, regard the Buddha Dharma in 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 a lot of it, the different traditions as being quite misogynistic, and so you you will know in the Theravada tradition there's 
quite a uh, controversy. There has been quite a controversy and um, uh, heated debate in the last few years around whether nuns can be fully ordained um, and whether they have uh, can have uh, a status of full ordination in in the order within Buddhism and a, an equal status to monks and quite a lot of um, charged and heated polemic and debate around that and um, quite rightly i think there's there's a case that some people would say there's a kind of misogyny running through um running through a lot of buddhist traditions and i, I don't think it uh, restricts itself to the theravada um and i've certainly heard all, all kinds of stories about um women even teachers of mind being in in monasteries when they were young women trying to practice with their meditation and develop their practice with a lot of dedication and many of the monks treating them uh, with a lot of um, uh, disdain and disrespect and even more than that just uh, one teacher telling me uh, that they basically look at, look at you like you have the plague uh, and as if you're all they see is someone who's distracting them from their uh, path because you're in the form of a temptress, etc. And, and again, so much you hear this, this kind of fear and avoidance, that with contraction of view and contraction actually of eros, etc., that we were uh, alluding to earlier. But I wonder sometimes if actually the misogyny that's there actually has its has its root in something, uh, or partly at least, in something more fundamental, which is just a kind of um, uh, a stance of uh, being anti-sensual eros. So it's like sensual eros, eros regarding in relation to sense experience is is something that uh, there is no place for in in a certain communication of the teachings in a certain um, uh, movement. So there can be eros for the transcendent, um, and there can be eros for the Buddha to a certain extent in terms of soul making and imagery, etc. But um, there's a kind of anti uh, or, or a, uh, what would you say a cutting off a dismissal a, a refusal of place to and a fear of um, sensual eros sensualist eros if you like eros um, with regard to sensuality and out of that um, that that partly has a kind of even more fundamental level maybe fu- fueling a misogyny I, d- I don't know what I wonder. Because in some visions or images, if you like, even if a person doesn't think that image and fantasy operates for them in regard to the path and awakening, but it's almost as if the vision, the fantasy, the image and the concept of awakening is exactly a life without eros. That's what awakening looks like. It's a life without eros. The flame has gone out. Um, and there's certainly no eros towards sensuality uh, or with regard to sensuality and um, there's no uh, eros even for the unfabricated or for any other um, kind of contemplative opening because that has been realized 
So there's a, there's a sense, an image, a fantasy of awakening uh, as, as what it looks like is a life without eros. And I've touched on before, you know, so <clears throat> oftentimes you teaching, insight meditation, etc. And if one even mentions or gives any instructions around um, what to do with sexual images or sexual energy that arises, excuse me, um, might might be um, in the more sort of uh, less tight, if you like, uh, traditions, um, you know, a kind of soft and generous and somewhat open, now just just notice them, just allow them, um, you know, that's okay, but but implicit is a, don't encourage them, for heaven's sake, don't encourage them. Um, they are not, we've said this before, um, sexual energy, sexual images, uh, etc., that they are not given any positive place on the path. They simply don't really fit. The only way they fit is um, in the sense of, well, they're just something else to be open to in a kind of attitude of, um, which is relatively popular, of just being Dharma as being open to all things. Um, they're just equal to anything else, and our job, with like with anything else, is just let them go. Let them come, let them go. Um, underneath all that um, is it's kind of well it's better if they don't arise it's at least less hassle um, if, if, if sexual images and sexual energy doesn't arise um, but uh, regarding that and regarding sense pleasure there's, there's sometimes it seems to me or it has seemed to me and I, 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 I know that um, other people feel this way and it's hard it, it, it's rare for them to actually be able to articulate it um, to themselves or to another. Um, there's a kind of confusion, uh, especially regarding sense pleasure, even more than um, sexuality, or <clears throat> there's a kind of a lack of coherence or integrity often in our thinking about this, in our view, in our sort of conceptual framework. So we might say, for instance, contrary to uh, what the Buddha taught for the most part, uh, we turn it a little bit upside down. So we say um, very often to meditators, don't chase meditative, meditative pleasure. You know, you might have a blissful sitting, but don't try and make it happen again. You might fall into a jhana, but these are really things you really want to be careful not to get attached to them, and, and don't try and repeat it, etc., etc., um, uh, whereas um, almost every day in um, the, well, actually both monasteries and um, retreat centers, extremely pleasant tasting food, um, a lot of time and energy goes into um, preparing that for the retreatants, for the monastics, etc. And if someone is... Um, who's dedicated to the Dharma, wants to share us about, oh, I'm going to go skiing, uh, such, such and such a place, or whatever it is, uh, it, it raises no eyebrow, even if it's just, oh, well, that's going to be a pleasant sense experience, it's going to be fun and pleasant, you know. Um, completely the opposite of, of what the Buddha originally encouraged, which is this, yes, strive to attain jhana, strive for that bliss. This is, this is... Um, something worth striving for. Develop it. Don't fear it. Um, whereas in, in relation to uh, wanting sense pleasures, nice food, nice um, sights, sounds, etc., 
pleasant. He, he was um, very disencouraging. So th- there's something w- w- we've, A, we've mixed up what the Buddha, um, see, the emphases the Buddha placed on these two things and, and where we should actually um, uh, strive for and put effort into and where we shouldn't. And um, but but even even more generally, there seems there seems kind of a confusion in our minds and and a lack of um, say integrity, coherence is, is is perhaps a better word. Um, so if we're wanting to kind of lessen our confusion, um, increase or support a sense of more coherence, more making sense in terms of our vision and our concept of the whole path, what that really means for our life. Because we can have a concept that makes sense, and then when it comes to our life, we're not actually really living it. And we're talking about people um, who really love studying the Dharma and involved in practice and and whatever, but but actually the, these things don't really um, hang together very coherently in terms of what the teachings say and what one might communicate with others um, and what makes sense, but then what, how one actually lives and the choices. There's, there's a lack of coherence and a, a lack of integrity often for us there. And so if we want less confusion, um, if we want to support a sort of making sense of the whole thing, integrating it into our life and, and feeling like that we have integrity and there is coherence there, then this means um, getting clear about a few things, okay, and or becoming more clear um, regarding qu- quite quite a few pieces here. Um, but by clear, I, I don't primarily mean um, clear seeing, as in I see clearly what's there, um, which implies a notion of reality. Um, maybe clear means, um, and getting clear and clearing means more like something like clear a path, clear a path for movement. Um, and what movement? The movement of soul making, the movement of eros, the movement of creation discovery, etc., that we've been talking about. Um, so, yes, there's some clear thing in terms of distinctions and delineations, like, like we've talked about between eros and craving, for example, etc. Um, but more it's like, what's blocked for us? And uh, what, when does that blocking not serve? Or uh, that, that kind of thing. So clearing a path. Um, but also clarity of delineation, etc. Now, included in all that is being clear, um, delineating between the three or four possibilities that we already talked about of ways that the path and and the, and the vision of awakening and the concept of awakening construe our relationship with sense experience. So, for example, just reviewing now, as we talked about, um, one very common view is um, the sense experience, maybe sense pleasure, and our job is to cut the papancha, cut the proliferation, cut the veil of images and thoughts and concepts around sense pleasure, um, cut it, remove it so that we can just meet experience, quote, barely, nakedly, directly, etc. There's this um, myth, really, of bare attention, something the Buddha never talked about. Um, 
And then there's either this construct of being with what is, being, um, meeting the touch of life, meeting life open to the touch of life, whatever it is. Or there's this kind of movement to a kind of atomistic reductionism. Um, you can't papancha and you're just with the sort of micro moments of Vedana and perception and all the rest of it. Um, both of these, either the sort of um, myth of what is and the touch of life, uh, or the atomistic reduction um, perception, conception, both of them are realist, right? We've said all this before. But that's the first one, uh, the first kind of group of views. Kapapancha and um, practice bare attention to sense pleasure. And then it's just a moment of pleasantness and there's, there's nothing else with that. A second view um, has, a, has a broader and deeper um, meaning given within it to the word papancha. And the whole movement there is not to the touch of life and the atomistic reality, but rather, beyond all that, to the unfabricated, to the transcendent, beyond all sense experience. So, here, sense pleasure, or sense experience, cutting papancha really means um, unfabricating. And for the sake of that transcendental thrust, the opening to the knowing of the realization of that sphere, that dimension where the eye ceases, where the ear ceases, where the perception of forms, the perception of sound ceases, etc., that we that we talked about, the unfabricated, the deathless. Um, and in contrast to those two, a third um, construal or conceptual framework regarding the senses and their place on the path um, and in the vision of awakening um, contrast papancha with what we might call psyche or image or uh, fantasy as good terms in our vocabulary um, with soul making basically papancha versus soul making erotic imaginal engagement with the, the senses, or in the language of Tantra, with, with skillful fabrication, the, the, the fabrication in which Tantrism uh, engages. So there's um, a deliberate um, fabrication of perception, enrichment, if you like, of perception, um, multi-dimensionalizing of perception, etc. Eros the imaginal and soul-making comes in to enrich, imbue, complexify, uh, widen, deepen, uh, and give dimensions to the uh, perception of and relationship um, with the senses. Whereas the first two construals, cutting the pancha and being with bare attention, um, or cutting the pancha as as the movement completely beyond the senses to the unfabricated, these do not allow that. uh, In those thrusts, or those visions of what the path is, they do not um, allow the erotic, imaginal, and the uh, soul-making with regard to the senses. Um, But with respect to all that, what we've been saying is, um, first of all, to acknowledge that soul-making already happens. No matter what view you have, it will come in one way another or another to our path and to our relationship, our view of ourselves and, and, and all that. Um, what we need to do is acknowledge this. 
uh, acknowledge the presence of eros, fantasy, and soul-making in our lives, in what we love, and if we love the path, that means in relation to the path and to awakening. Um, and uh, acknowledging that and then delineating that and uh, delineating that by create, you know, as we've done, you know, making these concepts and then seeing what that does and what opens up in terms of perception, and also being clear about what we talked about—the degrees of fabrication. So, in other words, there's a place for this bare attention, a small place, and there's certainly a place for the whole spectrum of unfabricating, and there's a place for skillful fabricating, for beautiful fabricating, for soul-making fabricating. And there's also a place for the different directions of eros, towards the senses, towards the um, uh, beyond the senses, the unfabricated, etc. Yeah. Um, so all of that kind of, to me, creates more coherence, more sense, allows us to actually have more integrity with respect to all this, and for all that to be integrated more into a vision and a fantasy of the path and a relationship with sense experience, which we can't avoid. You can only transcend sense experience um, for certain periods of time in, 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 med- in deep meditative practice. And otherwise we live in the world of sense experience. That's what the Buddha meant by the world. Sense experience, as he says. That's his definition of the world. Um, uh, so it seems important to sort of, can, can we really kind of open up a conception and a vision here that... Um, does does justice to really how we're living for a start, but also um, to to soul making and to and to that the movements of eros in the soul and the opening the discovery of 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 the sacred etc. Now, if we're talking about um, Eros, we're we're talking, as I mentioned, and soul making. We're talking. Eros implies soul making. Soul making implies eros, and both of them imply a sense of beauty. And beauty and the senses, of course, go go together. So sometimes we can again here we can almost be a little um, simplistic or naive or unquestioning in our assumptions around what beauty is and what its place is or isn't and what it is when it's in uh, in in the realm of the senses so eros implies beauty and a love of beauty and an attraction to beauty and we've touched on this um uh, what we love um uh, in regard to beauty and and in regard to soul making and that whole movement of eros is is the intimacy with beauty we love the connection um, that's involved when the beloved other is beautiful to us and there's that soul-making. We love that. We love the sensitivity and the tuning. We've touched on all this. But what actually is beauty? Uh, now, I've actually written about that, um, so I don't, I don't want to um, go off on a whole big too long tangent on all this, so I'm, I'm not going to um, I'm not going to say too much about it. But um, but actually, it strikes me as a really important question. What do we mean when we say beauty, or we find something beautiful? 
So this is an experience we have as human beings. Again, we can ignore it, we can um, try and put it in the dustbin or, or whatever, but we have the experience of beauty as human beings. Can we reduce beauty to just um, pleasantness? Um, to me, to me that, that they're just not equivalent. Pleasant sensation does not equate to beauty. And any time you feel touched by beauty or in awe of beauty, have a look, you know, look more carefully. Is this just about pleasant sense experience? Um, a pleasant, even if it's art, is it just a pleasant arrangement of colors and proportions on a painting or, or of pleasant sounds and their temporal arrangement uh, in, in a piece of music or, or whatever? Is it really just about pleasantness? What's happening when we're really touched and moved and kind of opened by a sense of beauty? This, to me, is a really interesting question, a really important question for us as human beings. Um, is it that there's some kind of resonating going on between us or between the soul in the soul with what is beautiful, with the beloved other? Is it that this whatever it is that I'm finding beautiful, is mirroring something in me? What's going on? Is it that I recognize something? And if it is any of that, is, is there some kind of sense of belonging when there's beauty? Like I, I somehow feel like I belong to something and I'm not even sure what that thing is. Maybe I don't have a sense of it. Maybe it's just this sense of dimensionality that opens and I belong to that dimensionality um, or maybe it's a divinity maybe it's not, maybe it's an archetype maybe it's cl clear or, or not at all, maybe it's just a very vague sense and often it is one of the things I would like to actually insist on um, and again I'm not going to go into this uh, now um, too much but is that a sense of beauty implies a sense of depth now, some people would do their utmost to try and um, refuse that notion. Um, but I think for us, when, when we have a sense of beauty, I'm talking about a sense that really touches us, when we really feel like, you know, when the heart and the soul and the being is touched by a sense of beauty, there is um, there a sense not only of our own depths, but also the depths of that which is beautiful to us. And this is very much connected with the whole movement of Eros and soul-making. We've said Eros needs this depth, this dimensionality, this unfathomability of the object, and that's part of what the imaginal kind of, um, uh, get what gets fabricated with the imaginal, uh, or, or is uh, inherent, if you like, in the imaginal, is this unfathomability, is this um, dimensionality and depth. Yes? So something here about unfathomability and 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 depth, uh, wrapped up in beauty, wrapped up in the erotic relationship with anything. Now, if we think for a little bit, uh, or consider for a little bit, different styles of meditation, even different styles. Of, let's just say insight meditation for now. Um, and many of you will know of the uh, Mahasi, what's called the Mahasi style, uh, taught by Mahasi Sayadaw or um, in beginning in the 20th century became. It was really one of the 
absolutely dominant um, uh, influences or streams uh, within insight meditation for for many years. So one of the very um, first influences uh, that that kind of in in the construction of insight meditation was was Mahasi Stan. Sometimes it was almost an exclusive. Um, uh, prevalence of that or domination within how insight meditation was taught certainly when I started in the mid 80s um, insight meditation uh, scene and, and circle and uh, retreat centers and retreats and teachings were all very dominated by <coughs> Mahasi style teachings um, alongside others at, at Ajahn Chah and um, as a sprinkling of Zen etc but Mahasi was very dominant. Um, in that style, um, there is, I would say, uh, was a very um, precise uh, noting of moment-to-moment experience and, a very, and tends towards a narrow focus of attention. So a very penetrative, um, intense application of continual mindfulness to sense experience uh, and an emphasis on bare attention, that notion of bare attention etc. Moment to moment, um, intense sustaining of the mindfulness on the sort of uh, uh, particles, if you like, of experience there. Um, I would say with that, that there is either no, or let's say very limited uh, eros there. There's very either none or very limited um, erotic possibility there. Why? Because sense objects are not unfathomable. In that whole presentation of the path and that whole way of teaching, and that whole presentation of the, the concept of what one is trying to do, sense objects are not unfathomable. And we've said Eros needs an unfathomability to it. Um, there is an assumption there in that whole presentation of the teaching related as it is to Abhidhammic, Theravadan Abhidhamma, which tends towards atomistic reductionism, is actually a whole set of teachings of atomist, atomist reductionism that was so criticized by, by Nagarjuna in the Mahayana <coughs> teachings on emptiness. Um, but there is an assumption that this atomistic reductionism that's happening through my very probing, narrow focus of sustained moment-to-moment mindfulness on the particles of sensation and sense experience and mental experience there. There is an assumption this atomistic reduction reveals reality. Yes? When I'm paying attention in this way, this so-called mindfulness, this so-called bare attention, um, by its very uh, you know, label, is regarded as, as penetrating to reality. Um, and that assumption supports that kind of attention, that attention reinforces that kind of assumption, and um, it's a kind of attention and a kind of assumption that stops the eros and therefore the eros-psychologos dynamic because there's not this unfathomability that eros needs. There is a sense of beauty there, but the beauty comes, people love, you know, Actually, some people hate it and some people love it and whatever people have an ambivalent relationship to that that way of practicing. But part of the love of the beauty there is more in what I was relating to before. It's in the intimacy, in the connection, in the sensitivity. That's what people love about that path. Um, I 
don't know whether anyone can really love that kind of atomistic reductionism. Um, but so there is some some degree of beauty, but the eros there is actually very limited. In recent years, um, the sort of predominance and prevalence of Mahasi style in the insight meditation tradition has waned, um, and you know it's become part of what informs and this retreats. You know that would just be that, and certain teachers who who just teach that way, and practitioners who just practice that way. Um, but more, it's just kind of waned and taken its, I would say, rightfully more modest place, um, mixed in with other uh, uh, concepts and approaches to practice and teachings. <clears throat> and then also more recently, in recent years, uh, a kind of elevation of the idea of insight meditation and practice as being most authentically or most one is most truly practicing when one is quote practicing quote non doing or just receiving experience or, or opening to experience and and sitting in or walking in a non doing, standing in a non doing and just receiving experience. I would actually say, I mean, in terms of where asking about eros and sense experience, that this uh, that mode of conceiving and, and uh, practicing and the assumptions there also um, uh, limit or, or uh, there is a lack there of eros as well within that way of practicing. Why? Um, because, again, there's a tacit assumption of the reality of being, uh, being as opposed to doing, that this is somehow real and reveals the way things really are. Doing would distort the way things are. This non-doing or being or receiving um, reveals the, the way things are. And that reality, that barrier there, um, prevents eros. So where there's a fixed reality view, the eros is is limited. In this case, in in relation to sense experience, in in that mode of of thinking about practice, and that mode of practicing. Um, Secondly, you could also point out that... um, we used words like, uh, if you remember, if you remember, we used words like opening and penetrating, with with the kind of sexual connotations that they have to describe the erotic movement, opening to the the erotic object, the beloved other, and penetrating it more, wanting more opening, wanting more uh, penetrating. Here, uh, in this mode of practicing, this kind of receiving, opening to receiving experience and non-doing, etc., so-called. Um, the erotic movement is limited to one of opening. In the Mahasi style, it tends to be limited um, to one of penetrating, not always. Um, and, and so that style is, if you like, more phallic in its thrust, and, and this style is more open. But e- e- either way, this style is, it limits the range and the style of um, erotic movement there. Um, but perhaps most importantly, the reason why it, uh, lacks or limits the eros is this way of practicing of so-called non-doing and receiving, opening to receiving. It tends towards uh, the perception of oneness and not particularity and not the retained otherness of eros. It tends instead towards oneness. In other words, if I just sit <coughs> uh, and I really practice um, 
as much as it seems to me, if I don't realize that it's a bit of a, uh, an illusion, if I just, uh, as long as I sit and I believe in so-called receiving and opening to receiving and non-doing, um, what will happen is it will um, unfabricate sense experience to a certain extent, and it tends towards uh, less of a perception of separation and distinction and towards more of a perception of oneness of all things. The sense objects, then, are not unfathomable. They don't have infinitely uh, an infinite dimensionality of depths in, you know, in that sense of unfathomable. Um, because at some point in doing that kind of practice, um, we recognize that rather sense experiences are universally one with probably awareness is the most likely thing, sometimes love, uh, one with a kind of universal awareness or love. As this practice goes deeper, before one realizes that it's, uh, hopefully realizes that it's, it's actually based on a mistaken conception and an illusion of, of non-doing, and uh, realism. <coughs> um, at some point, though, um, we, we have the, the perception and the, and the sense and the kind of recognition that all sense um, experience and all sense objects are universally one, most likely with awareness, with a universal awareness. And so this is, that's the way that that practice would go as it, as it deepens, one dedicates oneself to it. In which case, they are then fathomed. I've fathomed their true nature. They are awareness um, uh, in, in their essence, or they are love in their essence. Even if the uh, awareness or love is infinitely vast in space or in time, in other words, this awareness seems to have no limits, and this in, in space or in time, and this love seems to uh, be infinite in space and in time, there's a certain kind of infinity there, but I've reached the bottom level of the dimensionality. It is awareness, or it is love. So they are not, sense objects are then not, they don't have this unfathomability. They reach a fathoming, they reach a level beyond which they don't go deeper. You understand? So both these styles, the Mahasi style and the sort of, I don't know what to call it, the style, the way of non-doing, if you like, or the way of, quote, receiving, etc., all that, tend to actually limit, limit the eros with regard to sense experience um, through the whole way of thinking and through the, the way of practicing that comes out of that way of thinking and then reinforces that whole view and that whole relationship with sense experience. So that there cannot be the erotic soul-making in relation to the particularities of um, sense experience in, uh, and that unfathomability that's part of that, etc., and otherness that's part of that, that's part of the direction of <coughs> a certain kind of soul-making. So this, t to me, is, again, what are we trying to do here? How is our conception of the path and the way we're practicing limiting certain possibilities, whether that's the possibility of a deeper understanding of dependent origination and emptiness, whether that's the possibility of, 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 of kind of degrees and depths of freedom or directions of freedom, or the possibilities of soul-making and uh, opening to sacredness, etc., etc., so these questions to me are really, really important. Considerations are really important. 
so easily we can um, bring in assumptions uh, or, or rest on <coughs> uh, our practice and our view of, 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 of practice and of path and of awakening, rest on certain assumptions that are not fully checked out, all kinds of assumptions. So, in relation to sensuality, the experiences of the senses, um, and, and, and the beauty there, I'm saying, I would say, beauty, you know, what is our relationship there? What place, is there a place of beauty? What does that mean? So we could be talking about art here, um, any, any kind of medium of art, we could be talking about nature, we could be talking about whatever. <clears throat> but... As I said, is is the beauty that we feel in in relation to art or music or whatever it is is it only sensual? Is that what is that what's happening for us? That there's a sen- sensual pleasure because of the arrangement of these colours um, or these uh, sounds or what whatever it is. Is that what beauty is? Just reducible to sense pleasure, and I can sort of I'm, I'm best served by kind of um, giving a bare attention to the um, object of art, whatever that is, or the thing that's beautiful, and then just enjoying the pleasing effects of the arrangement of these um, elements of the artistic work in time and in space, the colors, the form, you know, whatever it is, the proportions there. What happens to our sense of beauty if we actually do manage to kind of squeeze it uh, down to that mode of relating to the object, to, to the art or the beautiful thing? What happens also if we, uh, just as with images, if we reduce um, whatever this beautiful thing is, whether it's something in art or or or, or something in nature, what happens when we reduce it to it means X. It represents specifically exactly X or Y. What happens when we reduce it to a kind of monovalency of meaning? What happens to our actual experience of beauty? So beauty seems to me, as I said, to involve its Yes, of course, we, we, that's part of beauty. The, I mean, if you make art, you know, of course it matters. The, the, the proportions, the timings, the, the, the spatial um, patterning, the uh, colors, the, you know, whatever, whatever it is, the timbres. Um, this, this matters greatly. You can't talk about the art separate from those elements. And it may well mean this and that, but to reduce it to either of them or both of them it will kill the beauty. Beauty needs and and needs this kind of something unfathomable in the depth, some some kind of dimensionality to it. Some I would say some kind of inexhaustibility, including of meaningfulness. So in other words, I can't quite um, get my I can't quite capture everything about it. Beauty and eros implicating each other, and soul making all that, and it has this beyond. I can't quite, um, uh, as a capture or define or reduce it or whatever. 
Now this, as I said, goes to me, um, it, it applies also to our relationship with nature. For example, landscape or, or whatever it is, or, or, or a tree or something. Or consider um, going for a walk in autumn. And there's a, you know, the autumnal scene there with trees of vividly bright colors, etc. And one can be really moved and touched, of course, I hope you know this, by, 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 by the beauty there. Sometimes it, 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 it moves us to, to great depth, this kind of uh, the beauty, for instance, of an autumn scene. Is it just that, that they are pretty, vivid colors? Sometimes we talk as if that's, that's what the beauty consists of, alone. Is, is that, how much real, how much can that really touch us? How, how much depth and, and beauty can that have? Or is it that plus or, in, or uh, only that we're amazed at the biological uh, wonder of it? How amazing that uh, trees evolved and with the light and the photosynthesis and then um, the chemical changes occurring... Uh, with the change in light and seasons and making the colors certain ways, and that's amazing. Um, or even, in the autumn scene, the poignancy of impermanence. Here is decay, here is death, here is uh, the, the, the cycle of life and death, and, and, and the poignance of, of, of that to the being. Or even all of those. Pretty vivid colors, amazing biology and evolution, and, and the poignancy of impermanence that, that, uh, that the autumn scene speaks to us. It can, can be all of those, and yet I would still say that in, in a, at least what I'm calling a sense of beauty, um, and, and, and in the relate, what really, what I would like to say, in the relationship with the sense experience there, um, can be all of these, but Something more, I would say, is there when we're really touched um, and, and we really have this sense of beauty. And, and more emphatically, something else can be there and hopefully is there because we don't, we don't cut it out. So in our relationship with sensuality, it's like what can be there? What needs to come in in order for beauty to be there? Um, something that we can't quite define or capture, some other um, depth, if you like, dimensionality, not the monovalency, not the reduction, not just plain or mere sense pleasure, pleasing sense experiences. Yes, that's all fine. That's, those levels are included, <clears throat> but more. So I, I would say, you know, if we want to um, include um, a sense of beauty uh, in our lives and on, on the path, and include it on the path and open it and, and, and have it be alive and give it place, and if we're interested um, in soul-making and eros, which, as I said, always include a sense of beauty, then it's actually necessary that in our relationship with the senses, in our relationship with sense experience, um, we don't reduce uh, the view to um, this is simply seeking and enjoying pleasant sense experience.
and either that that's what we want or that's what we um, dismiss. There's not a reduction. We don't see it that way. We don't conceive of it that way. Or we're not um, as a de- denigrating the senses uh, because we only want the transcendent beyond. There's something else that's possible here in the relationship with the senses. Yeah, talking about how can we understand, acknowledge, recognize, practice, live in in a way that allows soul making, allows eros, understands differently <coughs> um, in our relationship with sense experience. So we don't just dismiss it or feel guilty or whatever, and we don't flatten it, which would actually kill the beauty and kill the soul making. We actually acknowledge, get interested in, allow and support <coughs> this sense of dimensionality which is available to us in relationship to the senses, necessary for beauty and necessary for eros and soul making. And in that, something in the whole relationship with senses and sense experience and world um, tr- transforms, opens up. And, and in so doing, our whole sense of the path can as well. <coughs> the German philosopher Heidegger, and 20th century philosopher, um, uh, traced the uh, the etymology of um, the word for beautiful in German, das Schöne, Schöne. Um, and he traced the etymology to Scheinen in German, which is the root of the word for illusion, Schein. Uh, so that's interesting. He's tracing the, the notion of beautiful, to the word for illusion. Now, we could hear something like that and put it straight into a kind of narrow, um, uh, for some streams of the teaching, very typical sort of um, uh, Pali canon-influenced interpretation. Um, Yes, sense beauty is illusory. Um, and that's what he's. Uh, that's what we get from this etymology that Heidegger is pointing to. Um, <coughs> Heidegger was one of the things he was uh, accused of was a very dubious uh, et- etymolo- etymological playing with things. So um, it may or may not be the case. But again, what matters more to me with playing with words is what comes out of it and the soul making. Because we could hear it that way. Sense beauty is essential. Beauty is exactly illusory. It's illusory. There is sense experience, and there is the experience of pleasure or <coughs> unpleasant, pleasant or unpleasant in regard to the senses. But sense beauty is illusory. The beautiful is is related to illusion. Um, compare that with a deeper understanding of. <coughs> fabrication, um, the more tantric view, the soul-making view, and the, and the view that allows the erotic imaginal. And there we acknowledge, um, if you like, the fabrication. And that the beautiful is created and discovered. It's uh, created by the eros-psyche-logos dynamic, giving more dimensionality, giving more um, multifacetedness, etc., in relation to that. But because of our deeper uh, and more kind of um, 
integrated understanding of what fabrication is and what it involves and the inevitability of it and what's and the place of soul making and the necessity of that and the place of eros and all that, there is no problem that the beautiful is connected with the illusory or the fabricated. No problem at all. We understand this is expressing a deep wisdom and a deep uh, way of integration. It unfolds uh, the possibility of a path. It opens the door of, of a wider avenue of practice, of creation and discovery, and of sacredness. <clears throat> One of the things I, I've been thinking for quite a while is in, in, in again, wisdom, art and beauty and, and all this, stay with that for a sec, um, is that in uh, a lot of um, modern Western poetry, um, there was a kind of a point, I'm not sure exactly when it happened, when the emphasis shifted really to things. It's like uh, the, the, the important thing to have in a poem is things. Um, but uh, in other words, don't talk about your feelings, don't talk about, um, certainly, for heaven's sake, don't talk about metaphysics or spiritual realities or that kind of thing. Talk about things, depict things, um, give us, quote, in a different sense, images of things. Um, but so, And so that's the, the, the sort of most dominant, I would say, tenor or um, <coughs> fabric of a lot of modern Western poetry is is really based in things um, that the uh, message there or, or, uh, to budding poets is is tie everything to sense experience. Tell us about things. Don't tell us about your feelings. Tell us about things, and your fe- your feelings will be communicated indirectly by what you say in and through what you say about things. But the things there are so often just um, kind of. Uh, imagined purely materially. Uh, They are conceived of purely material. There's a kind of one-dimensionality or flatland view of things, and therefore of sensuality. And that view of things is also tied together with a view of things um, uh, and human beings as well, of their fragility. The fragility of these things, and the fragility of human beings, of the ephemeral nature of both humans and things. Um, and all that is wrapped up, of course, in in a kind of assumption about the reality of our existential situation, our death and our finitude, all of which is con- fragility, ephemeral nature of things and solidity of things um, and the sensual being the only, uh, the important thing and uh, the finitude and death, etc. All of these are taken as realities in the unspoken backdrop. So that so often um, what the poem becomes is just about things and about holding things and others as dear. Because that's all we have given our existential situation. We have these flat things and, and humans and these things can become dear to us. But it's all against a kind of tragedy, though not in the classical sense of of our of our existential situation of finitude, of death, etc., and of one dimensionality. 
how different the view of the image of things and the image of human beings. So there's there's a whole current, and some of you may be aware of this, I don't know, but there's a whole um, really dominant current in, um, uh, you know, let's say professional um, uh, modern poetry in the West that, that kind of ties all this together. This is, these are the kinds of poems that are kind of acceptable or taken seriously and others won't be taken seriously. And it's all based on a certain worldview. And it also it tends towards the kind of deflationary art oftentimes that uh, I mentioned the other day. In a, in a way, so the, the view of art and sensuality and life and, and what's beautiful and all of that um, reflects um, the culture's sort of um, conceptual framework and logos regarding reality, regarding the senses, regarding things, regarding um, apparent existential situations, regarding what human being is, etc. reflects the, cult, the dominant worldview there. Um, and uh, the actual the lack of eros um, and soul making w- within the c- within the wider culture. <clears throat> uh, to, to me, I mean, to to me, these things are really important. They, they might not seem relevant to you. I don't know, but to me, um, poetry is very important. Art is extremely important. Music, all these things, and the relationship with nature is is really really. Uh, really key. Um, uh, and what then is given, for example, to our relationship with nature, um, if we can open the view of all this uh, in regard to our sense experience, in regard to the eros and soul making, uh, and, and let that in, dimensionality, etc., and, and the, the non-realism. What is given to our relationship with nature, and therefore to the environmental movement and, and, and the uh, ecological movements, if we open our view, and if we understand um, the soul-making dynamic and eros, psyche, logos, and everything that we've been talked, talked about, everything we've talked about, I would say that whole uh, relationship with nature and also the environmental movement gains, uh, is given other levels, it opens up in different ways. The environmental movement is given other ways uh, to enter the discourse. So it's not just about um, one-dimensional nature in a materialist sense that we're somehow trying to elevate in value and and so we can only speak in terms of their humanistic values or instrumentalist what uh, you know as resources or or, or, or this or that it's, it's uh, there's very rarely any talk of sacredness um, it, because that's gone out of uh, in relation to, to nature or anything else, but, um, apart from mainstream religion, because that's kind of gone out of the discourse of the worldview. And I wonder, I've talked about this before in those talks on ecology of love, um, so I'm just moving very quickly here because I need to end, but um, but I wonder, you, you know, can can that, can we dare to talk that way and dare to open up that kind of um, view and relationship uh, with uh, nature. Then so we see in understanding all this and what we're talking about on this retreat. Then we see the, um, the soul, the chitta, is is not separate from the beauty, from the divinity, from the dimensionality, from the unfathomability uh, of nature.
And we open those dimensions and, and that sense of sacredness. And then that can open the whole discourse around <coughs> the environmental movement, etc., which sometimes just seems so stuck on, on, on one level. So if we go back to what Heidegger wrote, um, the illusion in beauty or the fabrication, this doesn't... Um, the realization that fabrication, if you like, which is tied to the word for illusion, you know, uh, something is a fabrication, um, it, the acknowledgement of that, the realization of that, the entering into that does not at all demean the beauty that is fabricated there. Beauty is not separate from us. Some, there's some, a whole other level of um, participation uh, being alluded to here. What does it mean to participate in in nature? Yes, I've touched on this before. There's a whole other level here, in the soul level, in the soul-making level, in the erotic movement, in the recognition of fabrication, in the recognition of the creation and discovery of beauty and dimensionality. So illusion is only a kind of uh, derogatory Word when we're harboring an assumption somewhere, uh, usually at the back of our mind, if if, uh, if, if you're used to these teachings, um, still harboring something at the back of the mind or at the front of the mind, if you if you're not familiar with these teachings on emptiness, etc. But illusion is always put in contrast to some assumption. There's something that's not illusion. There's something that's not fabricated. Some experience, some bare experience, etc. It's not an illusion, but there isn't. The only thing that's unfabricated is beyond experience, beyond the senses, beyond any form. Um, beyond any being of an object. So there's not this non supposed non illusion in to which illusion is is compared and found uh, uh, to, to come up short. And when we realize that, then the fact of fabrication, the recognition, the admission, the entering into that is not a demeaning. And there's something, can you hear it? Can you, can you, can you grasp it? What this is inviting us into um, in terms of responsibility, but also in terms of the awareness of the multi-leveled participation we have in the cosmos in divinity, in being. Opening up the preciousness there. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.